is dead. Hey everyone, we're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we have a wonderful guest joining us uh, from Chicago, Illinois, logging in, hanging out, entering the Hit Factory. We have film writer and filmmaker Jonah Koslowski on the show. Jonah, thanks so much for uh, for hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, taking this uh long trip down the uh the lost highway hey there it is it's Uh, gonna be it's gonna be a real one it's gonna be it's gonna be a a trip maybe maybe one that will circle around multiple times even you know there might be some recurrence there might be some doppelgangers a sort of mobius strip type style to the to the format of this particular show we don't know yet we'll figure that out as we go along but as jonah uh, alluded to already Our film for today is David Lynch's 1997 Lost Highway, starring Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, Balthazar Getty, an excellent Robert Loggia performance as well. Uh, But Jonah, I I am curious, as I always am, because uh, you brought this one to us as, as your suggestion when I reached out and said, hey, come on the show. Uh, sometimes people give us a short list. Sometimes people like give us give us just one. And I feel like when we talked about it, there was there was definitely like Lynch, you know, was was kind of like the figurehead. But this one specifically, and I'm curious uh, why Lost Highway and what it means to you. Why why you enjoy this film or or why you want to talk about it? Yeah, it's it's hard to put into words, but I'm gonna do my best. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a stab at it. Uh I think that uh the 90s is a very, very interesting decade for Lynch and for his career. Um I well, the first time I watched Lost Highway, I was not a fan. I had seen um I'd seen, you know, most of Twin Peaks, uh, but not the return yet. I'd seen Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive and Eraserhead and, and loved all of those. And and uh, I kind of knew that I'd worked my way through the kind of the, uh, the, the, the A tier of his offerings, shall we say, you know, the, the, <laughs> the masterpieces, I feel like I'd, I'd mostly, I'd mostly seen at that point. And, uh, but I, I, it was, it was summer 2018 and I was, I was watching everything that he ever made. I was, I was trying to, I was trying to get, see, see everything. I hadn't seen anything before. I was trying to watch everything. Um, and I got to Lost Highway and I, I was like, oh man, this is, this is just a riff on Vertigo and uh, <laughs> uh, a first draft of Mulholland Drive. And, and you know, this is, this, this, this just isn't, um, this isn't a peak expression of him and his artistry and his ideas. And then the movie just kind of kept living in my brain and it kept festering. Um, 
And and whenever I would think about Mulholland Drive, I would find myself thinking about it. Whenever I'd write about Mulholland Drive, I would find myself writing about this as well. Uh, a lot of times when I would read about Mulholland Drive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I watched it about a year ago again, and I liked it so much more. And then on this rewatch, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that it's one of my favorite Lynch mm-hmm. movies ever. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just want to talk about it. I want to grapple it with. So, thank you for asking. It's a long answer, but that is, <laughs> that's why I brought it to you guys. Yeah, that's why, I, that's why I'm excited to delve into it. No, that's an amazing answer. Um, and I, I will, you know, say that I think the reputation of this film preceded it for me. I have always known it as sort of, uh, like B grade Lynch, right? Like sort of lesser Lynch, and and as you said, kind of like his audition tape for Mulholland Drive and the stuff that would kind of define his later era in the aughts. But after watching it this time, and this was a first watch, I I would say that it might be like in my top three uh, Lynch. I don't know. I'd have to go back and watch some stuff for sure. But I, I feel like like if I'm rating it right now, just like you know, gut check impulse, like right after watching it, it might be number three, right under blue velvet. And then Mulholland as like my, my, my two and one, um, there is, there's just something like fascinating about it. And I think as, as we'll kind of uncover, as we get into it, like you said, the nineties was a really interesting time for David Lynch's artistic expression. And this movie specifically, I think really represents like a hinge point for him. That is like really him making that kind of left turn into what would come to define his aesthetic, his tone and the stuff that like, you know, we think of as sort of parodically like Lynchian when people, uh, you know, talk about this on Twitter. (laughs) Right. um, um, But, but I think that this is like really, really the the start of that the inciting moment the impetus for that kind of definition of his career and i i think that there's a a ton to talk about in terms of like lynch himself as a filmmaker and why that's the case and like what was changing in his ideology um and then also just in like the actual narrative and the style of all of it too i have lots to say but i feel like we should get into it all i will say is that i was transfixed by this movie it was a first watch for me too um and something that anyone who listens to the show regularly would know about me um, is that uh, an extremely antagonizing characteristic of my personality is that when I watch movies, I am a question asker. (laughs) Um, I just like, I approach a lot of films with incredulity, not because I'm coming to them at a distance, but because I want to dive in like even more. Um, And I didn't ask any questions when I watched this movie, which is a testament to how transfixed I was. It's not because I didn't have questions. It's not because it didn't present me with questions or dead ends or mysteries. Um, But they came second to my experiencing the film, which I could not tear myself away from. Hell yeah. <laughs> Let me yeah. just say, like, that's awesome. <laughs> I think that's such like an important and crucial part of Lynch too, you know, which is that like there are people who kind of try to ape the style and who dabble in sort of like surrealism and, and his aesthetics. But the thing that makes him, I think, so, so unique and puts him sort of like at the top of that, like, you know, like the, the premier example of this kind of filmmaking is that way that his movies tend to transcend that impulse that we have as human beings to, to rationalize everything. I think it's kind of undermining the work sometimes to approach uh, his films as like a puzzle box and try to solve them, try to understand mm-hmm. every every impulse and every image. 
Um, and, and the fact that, as Carly said, you know, I watch a lot of movies with Carly and she is correct. She asks a lot of questions and the most that ever, you know, came out of Carly's mouth while we were watching this one for this full, like two hours and 13 minutes or however long was what the fuck yeah that was i mean there was a lot of that but you know but, but, but that's like but that's the fun right that's the and appeal that was a of rhetorical it. question for the record that was not a literal one right well i think it wouldn't be wrong to ask that in a literal way either you know like that is that is probably the key the key question it is the key question capital q what the fuck film. is going on but it's just like, you know, the thing about Lynch that I love too, and especially about Lost Highway, is that it feels like it feels like some other movies that deal with this same kind of conceit, right? Like uh, a, a psychic break or or you know, utilizing sort of psychosis and, and receding into the mind in order to block out trauma and and you know the horrors that you've committed as a person and and trying to create a narrative and remember things the way you would like to, the way that's comfortable as opposed to dealing with and facing your reality and, and transcending that. Um, but he doesn't give us like the concrete answer. There's never the moment where like Ben Kingsley shows us the photographs and says like, uh, you know, like this is you and, and you killed, you killed your wife because she murdered your children. You know, like none yeah, of that yeah, happens yeah, 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 in, in yeah. these movies. So, uh, and, and I just love it for that. Right. Like, it's like, yeah, it was like it was like a like a drop of blood in like a in water or like a drop of like food coloring or something, right? Where it hits and at first it has this kind of weird coagulated quality to it and then it starts to slowly just kind of pervade and and color everything and I kept thinking about it for days after we watched it where I, the more I thought about the moments, the more I revisited in my mind, the more it started to make sense even though none of it made sense while you're watching it and I, I just loved it, man. I, I think that this is a really really great David Lynch movie. Absolutely. I, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think he is willing with, with this, um, and with Mulholland drive and with, I think to fire walk with me, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. He, he's so willing to, to delve into the psyches of, of these characters and of these subjects. And he's so willing to present them in a way that is not comforting, that is frightening mm. that is that is complicated that that doesn't really make sense um and there's such a there's such a confidence there to 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 think that you can understand the way that someone who is having a psychic break is feeling to think that you can to think that you can express that 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 you you know the filmmaker who are presumably not having a psychic break at the time can express how someone who's having a psychic break is feeling but but i think that I don't know. I mean, I mean, Roger Ebert, his whole, you know, his big quote, you know, I mean, there are a million of them, but, but the, the Ebert quote that I think about a lot is, uh, movies are a machine for generating empathy. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think, I think this is such a, uh, uh, an expression of that. This is such a proof, mm -hmm. you know, a proof in practice of that, you know, uh, now whether or not you, you know, on, on any given night want to spend two hours and 15 minutes inside the head of a murderer, like that's up to you, <laughs> you know, but the, but the medium doesn't mean that you can't, you know, right. Like, mm -hmm. like, and that's what, and that's, and, and that's so fucking cool. Like, like yeah. this yes. is like, this is a medium where you can. If you want to, you know, if you don't want to, that's okay. Don't, <laughs> watch something else, you know, but, 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 but if, yeah, yeah, I just think that's, yeah, I just think it's amazing. Uh, ironically enough, uh, Roger Ebert kind of famously uh, hated Lynch, at least in his like later period. I, I don't think that he gave uh, Lost Highway, really any of, any of his sort of LA 
trilogy uh very high marks if i recall correctly and, and specifically didn't care for this one very much well so so he he actually this was the last one that he hated from from okay. what i know so he hated <laughs> he hated everything up to uh, Mulholland up to the straight story, I should say, which is okay. the thing he made right after this. And then he liked the straight story. And then I think he really loved Mulholland drive. And I think he really turned, turned around on Lynch with, with Mulholland drive. Mm, okay. But I don't know that he ever, I don't know that he ever took back all the, you know, bad stuff he said about <laughs> blue velvet and all of his other good movies, you know? And I mean, I, I, I do love thinking about that though. Cause as I was unraveling this movie and thinking about it more, one of the things that I feel like Lynch gets accused of, and I think even I was, feeling about this movie was that the narrative propulsion of it that the mystery at the heart of it that like the 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 way it unsettled me kept me uh on my toes the entire time and and helped me to sort of try uh help me help me to dismiss some of the lack of characterization that i was used to getting in these movies and as i started to piece it together and think about it and and write a little bit down about what i want to talk about i realized these characters are have they have more depth to them than a lot of characters I write about when we talk about the show. Actually, like I know so much about Fred and about Pete and about Renee and and Alice, you know, or or if they're the same person, you know. But but I was like, oh no, there's there's a ton here. There's so much more of uh, to this than I initially gave it credit for, and the way that he's able to interweave that characterization and generate that empathy in a movie that is. I don't want to say preoccupied, but but heavily fixated on continuing to keep you uh, sort of upended and off kilter is is really remarkable. Yeah. yeah, I'm I think what I found so fascinating about this film and I wasn't able to articulate it in the moment, but upon reflection where I landed is that Lynch is so unconcerned and this speaks to the confidence that you're mentioning is so unconcerned with doing like character building in the traditional sense and so I could see someone perhaps arguing like oh we don't know anything about these people and like it's hard for me to feel invested in Lynch's characters and yet he's doing like this intensely intimate work the fact that he is creating some sort of expression of a psychic break or you know, in other films, dreams, right? Like he's working in these really intimate spaces and at the same time, completely dispensing with all of the sort of like detritus of character building that comes with traditional uh, narrative cinema. And, and it's this like beautiful inversion of bringing the viewer in and making them invested in a perfect stranger where they can feel at once that they know nothing and everything. It's just beautiful. And I think this film is um, a really sterling example of his deafness in that, in that regard. Yeah. It's so fucking cool, right? Like it's so fucking cool. <laughs> really fucking cool. Yeah. It rocks. Uh, Jonah, before we get uh, further, do you want to take a, a, a stab at briefly summarizing this. Foist this on Jonah, yes. please. <laughs> and I and I want to be clear, this is a really, really windy movie. If you haven't seen it and you're listening, um, we're probably not going to 
even remotely do justice to the plot in the short time that we have. We would spend two hours just talking about it. Um, but if you if you could take a stab, Jonah, like a very, very topical sort of summary of this movie, we would love to hear it. I I actually I would love to. I kind of knew that this was coming. And <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that with you, you sort of said just now, like you should watch the movie before listening to this. And I think that's like 100% true, you know, yes, like definitely. 100%. You should, uh, uh, I think, yeah. And I think, I think with Lynch, when you try to talk about his work, you do, you do kind of debase it. You do kind of boil it down, right? Like these are, these are sort these are movies. He, he's making movies for you to dream about, not for you to talk about, you know, but, but here we are, like, we're talking about that. We're talking about it. We're going to talk about it. Like <laughs> we've been talking about it. It's, it's happening. Uh, sorry. You know, it's just, it's just the way it <laughs> is. That's yeah. How it works. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I will, I, I, if, if I sound like glib at all, if I sound like, it's it's i don't mean to take away anything from the work like i'm i'm just trying to put this thing into words that kind of can't be put into words you know yes. like I, <laughs> D- I david like, if yeah. you're listening <laughs> i don't mean it like <laughs> mea, mea culpa david <laughs> okay so lost highway lost highway so uh it, we start with uh fred madison played by bill pullman right after independence day right like this is like this is like right afterwards yep. like this is mm-hmm. not canonically but like in his career like this, yeah. this came out <laughs> <laughs> and so he lives in the 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 stupidest house anyone has ever seen <laughs> like <laughs> i mean it's really cool like don't get me wrong but like i don't see how anyone could ever like actually live in it it's got all these jagged edges and rectangular windows and he's chilling in his house and he hears someone come to his buzzer and the guy on the buzzer says Dick Laurent is dead. And you and Fred and, and Fred Madison are both like, what? Who who is that? What does that mean? So turns out Fred Madison is actually a jazz sax player. And oh my God, does he rail on this thing? Like he is just <laughs> it's there's strobe lights and it's sweaty, and he's just, you know, he's he's the greatest jazz sax player that anyone has ever seen. It's, I think it's, it's hardcore. It's the best sex scene in the movie. All the other ones are kind of unpleasant, <laughs> but that but that one is hot. Like that one is like he's really making love to that that alto sax. Yeah, you know? the the really? passion is palpable <laughs> between him and the sax. So the true. the passion between him and his wife Renee is not palpable. It's bad. <laughs> They, they have a bad relationship. Um, she is played by Patricia Arquette. She has uh, black hair. This will become important later on. Uh, so uh, it's pretty clear that their that their marriage is not rocking. Like this is not a couple that is thriving. Um, she doesn't come to his show so that she can read. And then he's like, "You read," and it's like it's just wow. Like these people hate each other. Um, and then later on, we see them have sex, and it's also bad. And she kind of pats him afterwards, and it's just a, it's just fucking devastating. Like it's just like, uh, uh, and it doesn't even. It seems like he's mad at himself, but he's taking it out on her. But mm-hmm. it's all fucked up, you know. Like nothing, nothing good is happening here. So, <laughs> so uh, he goes to a party with her. They live in LA. In case that wasn't clear. Uh, 
he goes to a party, at a, but I'm realizing that's not the most important thing that happens. The most important thing that happens is that he starts getting videotapes. He starts getting – someone keeps dropping off videos at his door and their videos – at first they're just of like the outside of the house and they call some detectives and the detectives come and they don't have – they can't help at all and then you get another video and it's a little bit – it's a video of them sleeping and it's really fucking scary and weird uh, and, and it's worth pointing out here. I just love this detail like – the first 45 minutes of this movie are like the most atmospheric beautiful some of the most beautiful stuff Lynch has like ever done um and they're they're you're 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 just drowning in these billowy red curtains and these these dark grays and blues and reds and 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 then these videos are in this like really digital stark uh black and white um I, I just love that 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 juxtaposition I just think it's so cool um yes <laughs> I'm so glad you pointed that out the first thing I remarked on within like the first several minutes of watching was the like pervasiveness of deep emerald and a deep maroon there's just like this red and green contrast that he has everywhere in these spaces and it's gorgeous and to your point the first time I saw footage on the video I was like huh like I was even more <laughs> repulsed by it and frightened by it because he had submerged me in like these really rich textures and colors. It it feels so abrupt when when the when the videos show up. Um, and then we find out that uh, Fred hates videos and he's he doesn't he doesn't let uh, uh, his wife own a video camera because he <laughs> likes to remember things the way he remembers them, um, <laughs> which is like pretty much the only time this movie is ever like verbalizing anything about itself. It's yes. <laughs> like the only time it's uh, not like fucking oblique as hell. So <laughs> it's not making you drown in atmosphere. Anyway, anyway, so uh, getting creepy videotapes, bad marriage. Uh, he goes to this party with his wife um, and uh, he sees this guy who just looks like an enormous asshole. He's got like a pencily mustache and uh, <laughs> it's just so clear that his wife is sleeping with this other dude or or it's so clear to him that he's certain that his wife is sleeping with this other mm. dude. Um, and then uh, the weirdest motherfucker that you've ever seen shows up, and that is the mystery man. <laughs> and he is that's that's literally the only character name we've got for him is the mystery <laughs> man. Um, he's he's wearing like kabuki makeup. Uh, he's played by uh, an actor whose name I don't know. Uh, uh, I Rob- Robert Blake. Robert Blake. Yeah, yeah. There, that's that's what it was. Um, and so <laughs> he uh, uh, he you know he's he's walking around and he just looks weird as hell. And he comes up to Fred and he's like, we've met before. We need to chat. Uh, and he's like, guess what? I'm in your house right now. And and Fred Madison is like, what? And he hands him a phone and he calls the house and Fred calls the house and the mystery man is on the other end. And you can tell it's him because nobody else talks like this on the fucking planet. So, of course, like you can recognize the voice on the other end. So... So then <laughs> they leave the party. Uh, Fred Madison is very off put. Uh, they go they go back home 
they're just suffocating in atmosphere. Like the like the movie is like like literally just boiling over at this point in every way. And then uh, suddenly Fred Madison is punched in the face by one of those detectives we saw earlier because he's being accused of having murdered his wife. And he's taken to jail and uh, uh, they're put on trial. He's found guilty. Uh, he says something like, please tell me I didn't do it. But it's like, uh, what, what, what is happening? You know, <laughs> just at this point, you're, <laughs> yep. you're in the full what the fuck mode. Um, uh, <laughs> he's in jail and uh, it's not going well for him. He's, he's very sick. He's not feeling so good. The prison doctor checks him out and like has nothing, has no help. And so, yeah, he is looking pretty fucked up. Fred Madison. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh. In his cell, uh, an enormous blue light that kind of looks like uh, what it looks like in Star Wars when the Millennium Falcon is going at light speed, like kind of like just like uh, turns on him <laughs> like and sucks him up and he's gone. And in his wake is uh, hot shit teen star Balthazar Getty playing uh, <laughs> someone named uh, Pete Dayton, I believe is the character name. Yep. So uh, Pete's a mechanic and he's a cool guy. Uh, and so they, cool. <laughs> I mean, and his dad is is Gary Busey. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yep. kind of makes sense that he would be like a like a neat, a neat person. So <laughs> and they're like a leather clad family, too. They like they've got like lots of chaps and like biker jackets. And, Denim vests. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my God. And there's there's a scene a little bit later on uh, where where. um Gary Busey's like, we'll never fucking tell him what happened that night. And it's like, yeah, you go, Gary Busey. Like, you are supporting your son. Like, that's Gary great. Gary Busey said A cab. <laughs> yeah, <did>. Gary Busey <laughs> said A cab. So from there, uh, you know, the police don't know what's going on, not, you know, unsure of what to do and what this other person is doing in in uh Fred's cell. They let him out, they kind of let him go back to his life. He's tailed. Uh, the police don't give up on him completely. He's tailed by um, two detectives who are not the same two detectives, but look very similar to the other yeah. two detectives. <laughs> uh, Pete goes back to his life, which basically consists of living at his parents' house, riding around with his friends who all sort of look like a 50s gang. Um, <laughs> everything gets very 50s at this point, I've always, yes. I've always felt. Um it just feels like you're 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 sucked into another time, but it's not. It's the same day, literally, as 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 the beginning of as as as, as what was taking place earlier. So Pete works at a uh, at a mechanic shop, which is run by a questionably cast Richard Pryor, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he does some body work for a uh, mobster named Mister Eddie. Um, and Mr. Eddie is bad news. You should not cut him off on the fr- on the <laughs> road, uh, as as Pete quickly finds out. Um, and Mr. Eddie also uh, is sleeping with a woman named Alice, who is played by Pr- Patricia Arquette, except she's blonde. Uh, so, holy shit! Uh, what what's going on? You know, <laughs> that's the same actress as before. You know, what's what's it's- going on? <laughs> It's it's the I think you should leave meme, right? It's yeah. the same actress. I don't know if it's supposed to be the same person. I don't person. know if she's playing the same person. <laughs> <laughs> so, um they uh Pete and uh Patricia Arquette as Alice immediately uh enter a 
completely irresponsible affair. They start sleeping with each other at a 50s motel. Uh, that's the only thing I can possibly call it. I don't know if there are any actual motels who look like that look like that in 1997. Yep. Um, and, okay, now... I know what you're thinking. This movie has seemed completely reasonable and comprehensible up to this point. <laughs> but so this is where <laughs> shit really gets crazy, okay? So uh, for whatever reason, Alice seems to sort of turn on Pete. At the same time, uh, Mr. Eddie clearly finds out that they're having this relationship. Um, they decide to go to this guy's house and uh, the guy is the same mustache asshole that uh, 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 Fred was convinced his wife was sleeping with at the beginning of the movie. Um, they, they have this really stupid plan that they're going to, like, knock him out, take all his money, and that's going to be that. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very bad plan. He gets <laughs> his head sliced off by a coffee table. Uh, and if you're thinking that sounds gruesome, it definitely is. Um, and then... Uh, and then... They drive out to this cabin after they do sort of take his money. And Fred has been – we've, we've seen this cabin before. It's been sort of interspersed. It's, it's sort of – it explodes, but we see the explosion in reverse. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> they have uh, – Patricia Arquette tells, tells Pete, you know, uh, wait – wait here like we have to wait here for something uh he's also starting to suffer the same weird head wound that fred was suffering uh earlier on and uh then they're waiting and so of course they have sex again uh and and right afterwards she's like you'll never have me and it's like oh fuck like this is really bad like <laughs> this is <laughs> this is really bad um and then ma uh magically uh uh he uh pete transforms back into fred and uh also the mystery man and mr eddie show up and the mystery man has the video camera that presumably the videotapes were made on and uh it's all like again really bad uh uh i believe uh we find out that mr eddie is dick laurent or that's a that's a name that he goes by sometimes um uh, the mystery man is then is initially on Mr. Eddie's side, but then he turns over to Pete and, and Fred's side. And uh, I think they kill Mr. Eddie and something, it, Patricia Arquette sort of disappears. And then uh, Fred sort of drives off into the distance, leaves the initial voice voicemail on the mailbox that we heard at the beginning. He drives up to the house and says, Dick Laurent is dead. Uh, the police are there waiting for him. Uh, they hear him. They start chasing him. He drives away and he drives away and he just, he just looks so fucked up. Like he's just, he's just losing it. Um, and we end on, on this awesome shot of just the road rippling past in the nighttime. And it's an awesome shot. It's a shot that Lynch has used like four or five times in his career. But yeah. I mean, it's fine. It's like very cool. Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's the movie. That's that's Lost Highway. That's everything. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> I mean, I know that like we are, as we said, degrading his work by putting it into words. But Jonah, that was splendid Thanks. that was yes well done very very good <laughs> i've spent some time thinking about this movie i don't know if you can i don't know no, if you can absolutely. tell <laughs> nailed nailed the dismount on that one i do not think that i could have done that in uh 
that concise a version. I, I would have forgotten key elements, I am very sure. Um, but jumping off from that, talking a little bit about like how this strange movie came to be. Uh, this is Lynch's first movie in five years after Firewalk With Me comes out. Before before we move on, I do want to. I guess I do want to say one thing about the Firewalk With Me and the and Please. the can stuff. So yeah, Firewalk With Me totally rejected it. Can one of the people who rejected it was uh, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, I know that's right. Yeah, I know for a fact that he said when he watched when he watched it like something like David Lynch has completely disappeared up his own ass or something like that, yes. which, which is like, just like so stupid. Like I, I, I in general, like, like Tarantino, I like a lot of his movies, but Oh, Oh my God. Like, I don't know how you can watch firewalk with me and think that like, it just, that just blows my mind. Like that, such yeah. a, and also like, if you want anyone to just like have gone up their own ass and be making art up there, it's David Lynch. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, like, <laughs> I, I know that like PT, PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson, there's like an anecdote that I think that John Krasinski shared about him where, you know, he and Emily Blunt were hanging out with him and Maya Rudolph and he was talking kind of poorly about a movie that they had just seen. And, and uh, you know, PTA didn't say, uh, let people enjoy things. But what he did say was like, <laughs> hey, you know, like as filmmakers, like we really shouldn't disparage other people's art. Like people taking swings is good and like they're gonna miss sometimes you know like that's that's just how it works and like if it's you know if, if, if it's bad it's, it's probably best just not to say so tarantino doesn't give a fuck about that like <laughs> he spent his entire career like like trouncing on other people's movies that he didn't like i think famously like he said that you know he loved uh he loved the the script for for scream kevin williamson's script for scream and that the worst thing about it is that it was directed by wes craven uh, and i i don't know if you waited till terrible take i don't l. know that it, it, yeah l. Uh, <laughs> l but uh big l you know but he's i mean he is he's super vocal about that kind of stuff and yeah i, I have to imagine that like the critical pushback and you know even some of like his his peers which by the way tarantino was all of like six minutes old in Hollywood at this point in 1992, right? Like Reservoir Dogs came out when and yeah, just yeah. before this. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nuts. I will say so, so that five year gap between fire walk with me and, and lost highway. Um, it's, it's a dead zone in my like understanding of Lynch in a lot of ways. Uh, there's, he made uh, a series called On the Air right after Twin Peaks that was like immediately canceled. Um, <laughs> and then he actually he had a, 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 a series called Hotel Room. It was an anthology series. Uh, I did not know about this until like a, about a year ago, a little, a little less than a year ago. It is actually pretty easily available on DVD. I was able to buy the DVD. I'm a oh. fake fan. I haven't watched it yet. Like it's just been sitting on my <laughs> on my shelf. Um, but like Harry Dean Stanton is in it. And, and yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think it was on HBO. I think I'm not even sure, but like, yeah, this, this idea of this, like th th that he took a break from filmmaking and that he, you know, and then he came back and he made lost highway. Like, yeah, it's such a crazy comeback, but I was also thinking like it, it hit me how similar the setup of the second half of lost highway and the, uh, the, the the early section of Pulp Fiction are like they're both about mm -hmm. they're they both are about like a young idiot who has to, to like take out 
this sort of gangster who he knows like like mistress and mm-hmm. he's not supposed to sleep with her and then like well i guess i mean they don't sleep together in pulp fiction but some horrible other shit happens you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh and and yeah i mean i think both obviously both are are pulling from noir lost highway is like so so uh built on on top of like uh uh detour the the edgar Omar, I believe his name is Edgar Omar. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Love Detour. That's like a if listeners haven't listened to it, it's only like sixty-two minutes long, and it is awesome. It like it rips from start to finish. It's a great noir. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's so it's so good. And Lynch clearly feels the same way, right? Like this is yeah. <laughs> this is so uh, built on top of that. But yeah, I, I think I think there might be a little bit of uh, 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 feeling like. Uh, Tarantino has it, trying to knock Tarantino down a peg and show him how how a story influenced by noirs and, and pulp fiction should go and, and, and how it should be done. This is the bedroom. You sleep here in this room, both of you. This is our bedroom. There's no other bedroom. No. I mean, I use it as a practice room. It's soundproof. You're a musician? Yeah. What's your axe? Tenor. Tenor saxophone. Deep. (laughs) Tone deaf. Do you want a video camera? No. Fred hates them. I like to remember things my own way. What do you mean by that? How I remembered them. Not necessarily the way they happened. Uh, one of the other things that I, I found interesting when I was, you know, kind of understanding the impetus for this film was that Lynch mentions in, in a couple interviews how how inspired he was by the OJ Simpson trial. And some people might think, Oh, that's kind of morbid or a little creepy of, of David Lynch. But when he explains it and when I, when I actually watched his interview, it, it, I found it really fascinating. You know, what he, what he said was, uh, here's a man who I, I think definitely killed two people. And I watched him, uh, face this highly public trial, spend time in prison for a little while, get released, acquitted playing golf and he says you know i i wonder what it takes psychologically to be able to go and play golf after doing that and that was kind of like what inspired him to explore the story of fred slash pete i think that's awesome i think that's really really fascinating that rips yeah i mean that's another reason why i picked this for for your podcast like i when i think of defining events of like the 90s like you know i i wasn't around for pretty much all of it but the (laughs) the oj trial like (laughs) looms very large like in 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 my understanding of 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 the decade and and yeah this feels like such a a genuine attempt to reckon with with it but but also like like something about the how how performed all of that was you know and and yeah. how in the spotlight you know everything and everyone was how how uh, all of it was on you know videotape 
you, you know, broadcast for the entire country to see. Um, you know what? What you know? What what if? What if you looked actually internally? You know what if? What if you looked mm. actually at, at the at the psyche of the people? And you didn't you didn't sensationalize it. You know you you actually just explored. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it, it's it's so bold. Like I could I I I don't know. You 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 have to be. I, I mean it's a cliche to call like an, an artist brave, but I do think you have to be pretty fucking brave to try to to try to step into. A completely incomprehensible psyche, and and Fred Madison clearly has a completely incomprehensible <laughs> psyche. Like I think that's pretty Absolutely. clear, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know it's a an impulse that I think not just surrounding the OJ trial, but just sort of more broadly societally. Like, yes, we're intensely individualistic, um, and there's a certain amount of navel gazing that happens, but very rarely are we interested in investigating sort of like the internal landscape of trauma or violence. Um, And, you know, we talk a lot on this show about the Rodney King beating and the way that it influenced cinema um, in, in so many ways for years afterward, particularly um, mainstream action fair, um, which this movie is not, of course, but, Another thing that it did was heavily influence the O.J. Simpson trial um, and its outcomes. And so it is worth noting that Lynch is sort of dispensing with the racial racial politics of the era and is actually just, as you said, going inward. That doesn't mean that those things aren't there and that they're not worth exploring and investigating, but that's not the territory that he's interested in here. Um, that I think makes this film a really interesting artifact of that particular moment because so much of the media being created in the maelstrom after the Rodney King beating for years, um, was you, you see its tentacles all, all over it. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking wild. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I have to say about that. There is another interview that I I watched of, of his that came out sort of contemporarily and then right around that same time that lost highway was gaining momentum or, or, you know, not gaining momentum, but at least being seen and and being received by specifically French media, I think. Uh, And this, this woman with a thick French accent asks him, do you make films in order to explore your inner self? And he says, absolutely not. No. He's like, films for me are a doorway. They're a way for me to, create a frame and create an entry into another way of thinking, into a different life, into a different experience that I don't understand. That's what film is for me. And that's how I always approach it. Wait, I, I just want to say that. Okay. Wait, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I haven't seen that interview. Like I, I really need to watch that, but, (laughs) but that's fucking bullshit that he's not exploring his own like inner (laughs) self. Like, (laughs) I mean, I, and to be fair, it's like 1998, and he's like literally sitting there with like a, a, a cigarette burnt, like three inches down, and just like dangling between like his like not even his like his uh, forefinger and his like middle finger, like his like his ring and his middle finger, just like sitting there and in the dark with like uh, a, a black and white TV flashing <laughs> images like from silhouette. Lost Highway. Yeah, it's very it's like designed very very much to like uh, 
you know, feel simpatico with with Lynch's sensibilities or whatever these these folks at this uh, news station thought Lynch's sensibilities were. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. But I think, yeah, I guess I just I think um, Eraserhead and Blue Velvet to me yeah, are are successful because they are explorations of him. Like, like yeah. they right. are, they, they are, he's creating that frame and then he is stepping into it. And it's like, mm. whoa, look, look there, there you are. Like, this is, this is how you see the world. This is what you're struggling with. This is, this is being expressed in like kind of the perfect way. I think actually fire walk with me is the first point. I mean, it's not the first point, but it, to me, it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's really the beginning of him, of him doing what he's, what he's doing in this interview that you're, that you're, that you're, that you're describing where he, where he's, where he's letting someone else be in that frame. Mm -hmm. And then I think this is, uh, this is the first time that this is where he found the method with which to do that, right? Which is present both the objective quote-unquote reality that the psyche exists in and juxtapose it with the uh subjective reality that they would like to be in their fantasy you know you know Mm -hmm. where where they yeah and so i think that's like the perfect method with which to do this right and i think that it i i definitely don't think fred madison like is him you know but like don't (laughs) Don't tell me Blue Velvet isn't about you, David. Well, like, no, don't. totally. That, that, that was where I was going to go next is say, like, I don't know how he, how he, uh, you know, uh, squares that with the fact that we all know what Eraserhead is about, that it's like his fear of fatherhood, right? Like, that, that, yeah, that to yeah. me is like, I, yeah, I don't, I, you're talking out of your ass a little bit there, David. It's, but. it's revisionist history purely for the, the art of crafting a persona. It's a different himself. reality. It's a new way of perceiving his, his art and, and, and re- reifying a different interpretation yes. of it. That's yeah. the subjective space is that Eraserhead isn't about him. Like, <laughs> That's right. He the way he likes to remember it, not right. the way yeah, that, exactly. That, exactly. That, not the, the, way the videotape the shows video. it. Yeah. <laughs> We've cracked it. We've psychologized him. I, I think um, we have. <laughs> I will say, while we're talking about doorways, I want to pause briefly and talk about doorways and corridors in this film. Oh uh, um, yes, 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 that yes, sounds please. great. <laughs> Let's talk about doorways. I think this is a perfect segue. I mean, he serves it up beautifully for us in this in this interview when he says, "I like to to make a doorway and you know have have uh, give people the the space to walk through it." This film is just a uh, an endless stream of doors and hallways hallways with doors doors that go nowhere hallways that go nowhere spaces corners like upon reflection once i was you know more more grounded in my understanding of the film i was like as an art history major i could have absolutely gleaned that he was doing some like psychic landscaping with that because mm-hmm. You know, it is very famously a trope that, that artists often use uh, when they're wanting to um, to visually communicate a psychic space. And the thing that I find really striking about the doorways and the corridors in this film is that I could almost see the different kinds of doors um, that he presents us with as 
different aspects of this man's personality or different like avenues that um that he might go down you know there's the carceral doors and bars that we see there's um doorways that uh that lead to him seeing people having sex there are um doors that open up into rooms that he's completely unfamiliar with it you know it's is a beautiful and strange thing that he does um, where he is communicating. Lynch is communicating so much like spatial mapping and at the same time, like really pulling the ground out from underneath us um, so that you never quite know where you are. Absolutely. I would, I would, I would maybe even take it one step further and say that the the house itself is such an expression of of his of his psyche. Yes. Um, yep. With all of its, you know, jagged edges and just general like horribleness to my like <laughs> like yeah. I, I would definitely um yeah, yeah, that's 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 such a good that's such a good point. And and again, like the mystery man is in the house. Like he's gone through the door. You know, he's 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 been there. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. That's so. That's such a cool way to think about it. Yeah, I love that. And the that. walls, the walls are totally bare except for like one or two kind of errant pieces of art that he has hanging somewhere. And that space on the walls is just like horrendous. Like when I was looking at it on screen, I was like, "This is so ugly and off-putting," and just like I can't. It's just like just the bare space was um was really hard to look at and to your point like the spaces of his mind are are kind of repulsive right yeah i mean definitely right like (laughs) like like this is not uh this is not comfortable this is not nice to be in uh uh it's not it's not nice for him like his his head is literally like bursting you know know? um but 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 it but but it does feel genuine you know it does feel like an authentic representation of 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 what's going on because it's so extrapolated and and there's so much artifice but it's all inward you know that's yeah that's it's so cool wait i'm sorry can i just take us down one tangent for a second like please (laughs) we love tangents yes of course okay so i've actually i've been to the lost highway house like i've (laughs) like have you yeah i doesn't doesn't david lynch own it (laughs) yeah Yeah, i was gonna say like he he mentioned that he had to buy it uh in this interview because so so here's a here's a tangent on a tangent just so that there's there's context here (laughs) so the the opening of the film in which uh, this voice buzzes the intercom and says Dick Laurent is dead, is something that David Lynch experienced in his real life. He lived next door to another, an, an actor named David Flanders, I think is his name, um, who was was living in this same sort of like, you know, duplex apartment area. And he believes to this day that someone buzzed him by mistake intending to talk to the other David. And said the phrase Dick Laurent is dead, which he never he didn't understand. He doesn't know anyone named Dick Laurent. Um, and then when he when he when he went out to look to see who it was, there was nobody there. So he scoured the valley and looked all over, you know, Los Angeles, trying to find a place that was a home that they could use that had a similar setup to his, in which there was a front door and like an intercom that was far enough away from where they would have to buzz. 
that you couldn't see them. Like that you'd have to round that corner and kind of go down that staircase, you know? He said it was very difficult to find. They eventually did find it. And when they did, it was on the market. So they're like, he he decided, I'm just going to buy it. That way we can fuck up the interior of the house and make it look the way we want to uh, and not have to like build a separate set and then shoot the exteriors here. And so now he owns the home. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's it's a sound studio. And uh, yeah, you can find it. You can find it and go there pretty easily. Like I can tell you from personal experience. Is it the same? Does, yeah, like, it, does it still look the way that yeah, it does in the movie? Yeah, it looks just as 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 oh, uh, wonky and weird. Yeah, yeah, no. I, yeah. I was I my my family, uh, uh, my my parents and my sister. We all went to L.A. Um, right right before COVID hit. Actually, like you know, we're we were in Illinois. It was freezing. We went to California in the winter. Um, and we were driving around. We were near the Griffith Observatory, and I, I was like, I gotta find, I gotta find some kind of David Lynch thing. I gotta find, you know. So <laughs> yes. I did a, just a little bit of googling, and yeah, I, I uh, we went to the house. I think the photo's still on my phone. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely like I did buzz the intercom and say, Laurent is like, I know it's like a little like you know that's like kind of a faux pas, but like you know, no, <laughs> like, I love that. No, of course awesome. you must you have to especially if it's still functional like you can't not oh my gosh it's like and, running up the rocky steps like which i have also done it's a cliche sure but you got to do it when you're there you know mm-hmm. like absolutely <laughs> and like what's he gonna say like oh you watched my movie and you liked it you know like <laughs> oh like this made an impression on you you know like <laughs> <laughs> That's too much. Now I really want to go and see that house. We're, we're going to have to now. We're already here on the West Coast. We might as well trek down and find the Lost Highway House. Just, thank um, you. But, I mean, the, the interiors of this and, and you know, back on this conversation around, like, the, the hallways and the doorways and stuff, like, I, I'm glad we're, we're on it and talking about it a little bit. Have you ever read uh, House of Leaves, Jonah? No, I don't think so. What is, what is there, that? What is, there's a novel by a, a writer named Mark Z. Danielewski that came out in 2000 called House of Leaves. And it is a story within a story within a story. It's it's very dense, and it is uh, written in a, a very kind of erudite style that's meant to mimic academia in certain parts. But the sort of central story of it is about a family uh, who start experiencing weird happenings in this new home that they've just purchased and realize uh, that there are closets and rooms in the house that physically should not exist. The interior of the house is larger than the than the exterior of the house. Nope. And so the husband starts documenting with video footage this phenomenon. And eventually they open up a closet that appears in their hallway that has now taken on the depth of like leagues and miles. And and I, 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 it came to mind watching the sort of like atmospherics in the interiors of the first part of this movie where I was like, this is this is what I felt reading that book. Mm-hmm. Like this is that story. Um, you know, especially that like kind of long glance down like that black hallway. Black hallway. Wh- which we already know geometrically like is rather short because we watched the videotapes. But the vi- videotapes offer the the objective reality and we see from the front door to the corner where their bedroom is is only a handful of steps. But then they're standing on either end of it in this blackness and it like takes on this like massive sort of chasm kind of quality. And it's just like terrifying. The, the, the first like 50 minutes of this movie are very, very scary. That's actually, that that's actually, that's something I wanted to ask you guys. Um, 
the first 50 minutes are such atmospheric, uh, like beauty, you know, suffocating, uh, gorgeous, frightening, all of the above. Do you, do you feel that it takes a step down in the second half? Like, how do you, yeah. How do you, how do you feel about the, the, the kind of seismic shift that it goes through? That's a good question. It's a great question. Yeah. I, I'm going to say no, actually. I felt, I felt pretty hooked. And I think that I needed the reprieve from the atmospherics at the point that we have this part that you, you mentioned in your plot synopsis, Jonah, where we're like swimming in atmosphere. Like it's like palpable and tense. And there's this like droning score. I, I was like, okay, I, we're, we're, we're at a boiling point, as you mentioned, right? Like it, it, it boils over, it tips. And then that kind of like release of getting a little bit of an answer, but not really when we are are in the jail cell. And then finally, when the psychic break happens and we're in what is a, a pretty natural, normal kind of environment, almost to the point of like it, it feels like a, a parody or like a, a satire of Americana of like mid-century kind of stuff. Right. You said like they have this kind of like. Pete and his friends have this kind of greaser quality to it. Like Sheila is dressed like she's in the nineties, but like, I still imagine her in like a poodle skirt for some reason and like malt shops and you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that it does some really, really good stuff with setting you in a really familiar territory while unsettling you with the dynamics of the story as it's starting to take on uh, more kind of textures of, of surreality. You know, once once Alice shows up and and things kind of go haywire, it, it you need a little bit, you need a little bit of the winnowing down of the atmospherics into something more natural, and it's and it but it doesn't ever stop unsettling you at all. No, I I, I like the the second half or even like the, the back two thirds of this movie. I think just as much. I agree with everything that Aaron just said, but that I actually found the sort of back half of the film, back two thirds of the film, more unsettling because of the first 50 minutes. Mm. Like the first 50 minutes being what they were um, and just feeling sort of awash in this, uh, this really atmospheric, as, we'll, as we keep saying, um, like sort of dark textured space then moving into these like golden hues and sunlight and, you know, um, and all the sort of like cherry pop and daddies like vibe of the whole thing. <laughs> like I, I was, I couldn't relax because the, the beginning of the film had sort of set me adrift into this, into this headspace. And so I just kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. That, that that's so clarifying like sort of how I'm sort of thinking about this like thank you mm-hmm. like this is because because okay I always I always think about this in in conversation with Mulholland Drive and as a, a mirror mm. of Mulholland Drive in so many ways you know if Mulholland Drive is showcasing a female subjectivity this is showcasing a male subjectivity I stole that from a book that I read on Lynch like like that's <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean like like uh uh Lost Highway does objectivity first then subjectivity Mulholland Drive does the subjective space then the then the objective space you know you know uh they're they're such perfect mirrors of each other but I think in in Mulholland Drive 
the subjective stuff that we're seeing, the fantasy world of Betty and Rita and 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 the audition, the audition scene and the worst hitman in the world scene and, and all those scenes, all of those scenes are so gratifying and enjoyable on their own. You know, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like, and, and that's because they, they're, they're for, they're for a television pilot, you know, like, yes. I, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be immediately watchable when you, when you tune in from the commercial break. Whereas with, with Lost Highway, you, you, you guys are so right. Like there's a confidence there that you are going to be just as on the edge of your seat and just as engaged, even as there's not even a semblance of a plot or an entertainment like to what is happening you know it's it's just it's just sort of life going on mm-hmm. and it and, and it sort of resembles a noir but it's sort of but it, but it, it's so much more aimless than that and mm. and and balthazar getty is is such a kind of a nothing in my opinion yes like, as a, he's as, such a nothing he as, looks different in every frame of this movie like i i explained him to carly while we were watching like he kind of looks like if leave schreiber and uh charlie sheen did like the fusion dance but like beyond that like he doesn't like every time they light him and show him like he's like a little bit different looking like he's just kind of like he's blank (laughs) and and like naomi watts is a good enough actress that she can embody both the fantasy of that character and the reality and tie them together she is an amazing performer i i'm not sure that balthazar getty or uh frankly uh uh, uh bill pullman are quite that strong <laughs> that they can Fair be enough, yeah. that they can be both at the same time and so this character demands a different approach and i think it fucking works like yep. it's so cool totally agree that's excellently put yeah i would agree with that wholeheartedly and, and you're right i mean like balthazar getty it's it works for the the purposes of this this film and what Lynch is trying to achieve. Apparently he got cast like just after Lynch saw like a photo of him somewhere. I was like, that's the guy like that. That's him. Um, It's also funny that he's a Getty. (laughs) Like he's, he's John Paul Getty, the third son, the one that was kidnapped by like the, by the, the mafia or or I don't even remember the name of the organized crime syndicate in Italy Mm -hmm. that like, that like abducted him and his grandfather wasn't going to pay the, pay the, ransom this was all chronicled in in the great ridley scott's film uh, all the money in the world right right yes. right uh, where but, christopher but, plummer replaced yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yes, where, yeah. He, where plummer replaces spacey and and does a pretty bang up job you know for only having like a couple of weeks to do that um uh, but but the, the the teenager abducted in that movie is the father of balthazar getty of Holy of, of pete dayton in this movie i don't i maybe i knew that and i forgot that's crazy that's yeah. <laughs> Well, and the Gettys historically of uh, one of the most moneyed families in America, right? right? Mm-hmm. Who own like large swaths of Los Angeles. They own all the images I try to steal on the internet too. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Some museums, a lot of stuff. Also worth noting, um, I, I forget the actress's name now, but the the young lady who plays uh, Sheila, who kind of looks like a like a young Samantha Mathis as well. She's got the, she totally yeah. does. I Samantha, was thinking that actually. I was like, I feel yeah. like we're watching Pump Up the Volume, but not <laughs> Samantha Mathis is is definitely hotter. But uh, but that that actress, uh, Natalie Wood's daughter. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So there a bunch, yeah, a bunch of like you know kids of of famous people like populating this this particular run here of the Good movie. Good for them. Have you guys um have you guys read the Nick Pinkerton essay on this movie? 
I'm no. just wondering. Oh man. Okay. Nick Pinkerton. I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, film Twitter's bad boy. Uh, <laughs> as it were. Um, Kino Lorber or or somebody was doing a a, a Blu-ray re-release of Lost Highway, and they asked Pinkerton to do basically it, it wasn't a Criterion essay, but it was it was the equivalent of a Criterion essay for this. And then this was summer 2019. Lynch like Lynch actually went on on Twitter himself and was like, "I don't endorse the release of this." Uh, oh boy! <laughs> of, of, of this of this reissue, no, no, no. Uh, and so that essay obviously didn't come out because the Blu-ray didn't come out. But then Pinkerton released the the, the essay that he wrote on his Substack, and he was like, you know, you know, I, I love David Lynch so much. You know, David Lynch could ask me to eat shit, and I would do it. Like, you know, I hold this man <laughs> in such in such high regard. Like, like, uh, of course, I'm glad this didn't come out. You know, <laughs> but here's the here's the essay here. Here's what I wrote about, um, and it's really good. And I think it, I actually, I think it mentions a lot of the stuff you're talking about, like, like sort of the, just the, the LA texture that's just mm. baked into this movie. It's also just a, like a really good piece of criticism. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm going to oh, hunt it down and we'll, we'll, link, we'll to that. link it in the show description for sure. I definitely want to read that. Um, but let's talk about a couple of the, the performances that are, are very good in this movie that, that work because the actors behind them are also, you know, killing it. Um, Pullman, I think, does a, a pretty good job, as as you said. And maybe not, you know, he's he's not Naomi Watts um, in Mulholland, but he's he's doing good work, and and like you said, really wailing on that alto sax. Um, he Pullman is really good at being an aggrieved man. He is, yeah. He's very good at like having that face where he's just like, oh, something's like bothering him, yeah. or he's like terrorized by something. He's perpe- perpetually got like kind of like a. He's like his jowl is kind of being pulled on by like the the muscles of his cheeks. He's got his mouth always open. Anyway, he's he's good in this one. I think he's you're right. He's good as like kind of an aggrieved man. Um, standout performance in this one goes to I think Robert Loja, who plays Mr. Eddie, aka Dick Laurent, um, who got this role because he was aiming to get the Frank Booth role in Blue Velvet that eventually went to Dennis Hopper. Tell him you won't tailgate. Hammer! I won't ever. Do you know how many fucking car lengths it takes to stop a car at 35 miles an hour? Six fucking car lengths. That's 106 fucking feet, mister. If I had to stop something, you would have hit me. I want you to get a fucking driver's manual. I want you to study that motherfucker. And I want you to obey the goddamn rules. 50 fucking thousand people were killed on the highway last year because of fucking assholes like you. Tell me you're going to get a manual. Get a manual. Fun story behind this, talking about uh, representing themselves and their art and their creation. Robert Loja apparently was so upset with David Lynch when uh, he didn't get cast in Blue Velvet that he went on this expletive laden tirade on the set or or at the studio wherever it was and lynch eventually took some of what he was saying and turned it into mr eddie's rant to the tailgater (laughs) 
I don't know how much of it transferred and 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 what, but like just the thought of like Robert Loggia like incongruently bringing in all of these statistics about like auto fatalities on the set and like David Lynch just being like like a light bulb going off in his head as he's getting like screamed at just to me just sounds really, really awesome. Like I, I love the the image of that. But uh yeah, I, I think Robert Loggia is great in this one. And he's just like that that scene in particular is one that I think is really just cements him for me as like the standout performance. Absolutely. I would say, um, yeah, he's great. It's so funny that you say that because I know Pullman wanted Kyle MacLachlan's role in blue velvet. Uh So, so they're, they're both kind of the leftovers, Uh you know, coming in, you know, (laughs) we've got got B team here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yet this is not B Lynch. We've, we're all on the same page here. This is a, this is, (laughs) this is a Lynch. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I will say I think I think Patricia Arquette is is pretty pretty awesome in this yes. in this as well. I she think she owns it. And I think if we're if we're throwing the word brave around here, like I I think what she gives a very brave performance, and I think she ties together the two sides of of this character and of mm-hmm. of this woman in 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 a really really cool way, and and she she's never. She never alienates you completely, but I think you can see why he would feel alienated by her. But I also don't think. But I also think that that it, it's done in this way where it's clearly more of a reflection on him. To to me, like like yes. this is his fault. You know, you, you know you know you know this is this is this is not her. Maybe a little bit, but mostly, completely, it's his like, <laughs> and like, yeah. I, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, but like, yeah, this is this is how relationships work, you know. Like, it's never just, you know, it's a back and forth. It's it's a push and pull, you know. You're so right, and and she does this thing where you come to understand by the end of the film, or at least in the haze that you're in afterward, that Patricia Arquette is able to perform this woman in such a way so that we know that we are viewing her from Fred's eyes and heart space, which like, I don't know how the fuck you act that right. But like she does and Mm -hmm. she does it. Like I couldn't have necessarily like put words to that while I was watching it. But as some of the pieces fell into place for me, I knew that's exactly what I was looking at. I knew that I was looking at Patricia Arquette's character through Fred's male gaze and through like the psychic and emotional attachment that he has to her. And on top of that, the thing that Patricia Arquette does that I think like, I don't know if any other actress does this the way that she can. She is always in so many of her characters able to evoke a woman who is not at all a damsel in distress but who you maybe like pity a little bit or have a little bit of sympathy for and yet is like also somehow agent and and sexual and owns her sexuality I think also like I kept thinking about her performance as Bama in true romance. Definitely. Like there's a lot of people that like have feelings about her 
role in that movie in this like post me too era where like all these films in the nineties are getting like relitigated by people who shouldn't be talking about them. But (laughs) she is in that film. She is, you know, she's coded as like stupid. Right. But she's absolutely not. She is probably the smartest character in that story. Um, And, and it's, all because Patricia Arquette is able to imbue these characters with a kind of innocence that brings you in, but that also um, is more complicated than, oh, she's just like a ditzy blonde. And she does it beautifully in this film. And I, for one, found her to be the most like charismatic and captivating part of this entire movie. Like anytime she was on screen, I could not take my eyes off of her. You really get the sense that she wants to reach him. You know, you know that that mm-hmm. that that she doesn't that she can sense his alienation and impotency. Obviously, <laughs> you know she can that that that's something that that she that she that she feels. But at the same time, she's fucking pissed. You know, like she's she's at the end of her rope. You know, she 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 can't she can't solely exist just to further him and to help him. You know, and then he invents a fantasy version of her that does. And even that person doesn't stick around. You know, even even that person doesn't doesn't really, uh, 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 you know, submit or whatever to his to 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 his gaze and to his his understanding of her. And I I just think, yeah, I, I, I wish. I wish they'd work together again, man. Like, like mm-hmm. Patricia yes. Arquette and Lynch. Like, I, I, uh, I know, I, I know this role was was a big undertaking for her. I know that that it was that it was something that she felt pretty nervous doing. Who the fuck wouldn't? You know, like this is such a this is such a thing. But oh my god, does 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 she ever like land it and and yeah. and pull it off? And that that uh, connection. That, that she and Pullman are able to kind of create or, or the lack of connection and, 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 and the relationship that we get, not really, not, not, not through the words, but through how they're talking to each other and how yes. they're, mm-hmm. how they're communicating to each other is so rich. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> like, like, like the, the, we, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the production design and the cinematography furthering that atmosphere, but like the, the, the performances further it too, like so much. And, and, like you know, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the term mise en scène lately, and whether or not like it means anything. But like, <laughs> yeah, like it it probably does in a case like this. You know, like yes. all of the different elements of that house and of the scenes that take place in that house so firmly work together. Um, and maybe I'm just a masochist. Like I wouldn't have minded if the whole movie was like that. Like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have minded if if we'd if we'd stayed at, at that boil like for for longer. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. For like three hours? Because that's yeah. in an empire, I feel like. That's like... <laughs> okay, fair. Okay, fair. And I, I kind of can't stand that movie. Okay, okay. I got you. I got you. <laughs> uh, I, see, I, I remember thinking it was pretty cool. I was like I was like 17 when I watched it, and I was you know just actively seeking out things that were challenging and weird for me. And maybe I was being a contrarian at the time, like, no, this is the one you guys got to see. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'll have to rewatch it. But yeah, I mean, the, the atmospherics in that are, feel like it's it's him going like full throttle <laughs> <laughs> into this kind of feeling. I'll set it up for tomorrow night. You meet me at his place at 11 o'clock. Don't drive, take the bus. 
Make sure no one follows you. His address is easy to remember. It's 2224 Deep Dell Place. It's a white stucco job on the south side of the street. I'll be upstairs with Andy. The back door will be open. Go through the kitchen into the living room. There's a bar there. At 11.15, I'll send Andy down to fix me a drink. And when he does, you crack him in the head, okay? And not to just spend 30 minutes talking about Patricia Arquette, but to spend 30 minutes talking about Patricia Arquette. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, the other thing I will say about, about her performance here is um, if we're talking about mise-en-scene, like a really crucial part is her physical acting. Like, yes, the performances, you know, um, of like the spaces between them and, and all of that. But the, the stuff she's doing with her body, just like as a figure, um, is so, so captivating. And if we're thinking about the male gaze, I think like Patricia Arquette gives us this character who, wants to sort of reach her partner but can't and she's uh, sensing his alienation but also wanting to find her own sort of like verve and and all of these things um but her body her body is so important when we see Patricia Arquette's body in this in this film it's it is um it's noticeable in a way that one reminds us that it is the male gaze that we are situated within, but also reminds us um, that it's dangerous. Her body is kind of treacherous, right? It is this really intoxicating, uh, beautiful form, and she has this porcelain skin. She almost looks like a, a Grecian marble sculpture in this film, especially set against like a maroon wall or a black satin sheet. Um, but but there is, as with everything else in this film, there is something, there is something unsettling about her figure. There is something dangerous about it. And that is, I think, a testament to everything, but specifically to Lynch's vision and Patricia Arquette's performance. She is doing stuff with her body in this film that, like, I can't even put words to and I won't. Uh, I won't try, but... Um, I, I just wanted to call that point out. I think, especially as a woman, like I notice other women's bodies all the time. I think about my body. I think about my body moving through the world and how it's being received and, um, and you know, what it's communicating and all of those things. And she just has such, such a command over her physical presence, uh, that it, it would be, I think a disservice not to talk about it. Absolutely. I think one thing I love that I think Lynch knows how to do like really well is, is he'll, 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 he'll have a line that just nails everything. And I think for her, it's that line. You'll, you'll never have me, you know, you know, like, like if, if, if you are going to objectify me and you're going to, you're going to, to debase me into, you know, this, this object, then, then I, then, then that object is going to be unattainable to you forever. And, oh, oh my God. Like, like, yeah, like she just, she just hits the nail on the fucking head. Like, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. When that, when that line lands, it like Shen sends like, shivers down your spine i I think that 
from the audience of two on this side of the microphones, uh, there was like, I think as, as audible a response to that line <laughs> as anything else in this movie where we were just, yeah, it, it was, it's like, it's ravishing, right? Like it's, it's incredible. And, you know, I think that this is maybe a good opportunity to pivot into a deeper reading of the film, its themes, its narrative on Patricia Arquette specifically here, because, um, she she's the key to all of it, right? She's the consistent through point. She is the part that is sort of the 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 skeleton key to it all. That that is like the guiding figure that that holds on both sides of this narrative. Um, it is. I don't even. I don't want to call it a fan theory. I think it's a stupid word. It is a. I think widely accepted interpretation of this movie that Pete Balthazar Getty's character represents Bill Pullman's psychic break a fantasy, a delusion that he's created to ex- escape the horror of his, of his waking life. Um, you know, and, and of course one in which he is young and, uh, you know, brimming with virile, vir- I was gonna say vir- <laughs> virile and, 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 and desired by the opposite sex, you know, like there's the line that the detectives have where they're like, he gets more pussy than a toilet seat, you know, like all, all of these, these, ideals that he has about what he wants himself to be this young strapping uh you know sexually robust kind of character uh and and in spite of his deepest fantasies still reality persists and bleeds into that realm and by the end we get a character uh, a, a love interest who's identical to his real life wife who he's murdered who tells him as we just mentioned point blank you will never have me it's so it's so fucking funny. Like I'm sorry. Like like the <laughs> the 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 fantasy of himself to me. Like like I think if you put I think again if you put it into words it debases it. But it's like yeah. What if I was hot and young and got lots of girls and also I was a mechanic and also yeah. like <laughs> I had a cool dad. Like it's like like it's yes. It's just I like, drove a motorcycle. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> it is it is blackly funny which is a thing that i think gets lost sometimes in the conversation around lynch which is that like you know from from many accounts him as an individual is a very very funny person and i also don't think that like his movies are bleak by any means i think this movie is actually has a lot of really interesting themes and and things to say about intimacy and relationships and breaking through and the male gaze and how and fucking the male gaze. stupid it is like yes, yes. absolutely <laughs> and i and i think that it's like you know it it's so fascinating and this is the point at which when i was like writing about and taking notes about the movie when i realized like holy shit i know so much about these characters which is that like if there's something that defines fred pete one in the same it is his incapacity to feel and to exert anything approaching a real sense of like human intimacy with a mutual partner. And I was like, what a deep thing that came out of this movie that is just like, you know, this, this fever dream kind of like, you know, balls to the wall kind of surrealistic experience. It's like, Oh, like this is, this is the heart of that character and the heart of the story, which is that this man would rather like, live in delusion and break his brain and like you know cloud his his innermost psyche with all of this bullshit 
rather than just like understand the nuance and depths of a woman. <laughs> you know, like or, and himself, it's right? And himself. The, it's the answer to that question of how did OJ play golf afterwards? Exactly. It's how OJ played golf. Precisely that. Look at that. Look at look at what a movie can fucking do. Like how cool is that? Like yes. like, yes. <laughs> like this is what this is what like this medium at its like apex like can accomplish, you know? Like like I'm not and again it I, I know I sort of said this before i don't mean to like repeat myself but like yes it's uncomfortable and it's it's frequently disgusting and this movie has things in it that make me deeply uncomfortable no matter how many times i see it the 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 feeling of as as we sort of talking to talked about like like transitioning into this so much more comfortable quote-unquote narrative of 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 a gangster like while while everything else is unresolved you know but but we can, but we can, like, we can reach each other, you know, like that's, that's crazy. That's so cool. Like, yeah, it just, that just makes me really, really excited. Um, it, even, even with something as, as bleak and, and depressing as this, like, you know, as, as we're pulling back maybe a little bit and talking about it in terms of Lynch as like a filmmaker, I was reading some really compelling and really thoughtful interviews with, uh, like Lynch is, I, th- I think maybe like premier scholar, and maybe she's the person who wrote the book that you mentioned you read earlier, Jonah um, Martha P. Nokemson. Yep, yep, she's the yeah. one. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. My my whole senior thesis came out of you know reading her stuff. She, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's she's divine. She like she has written so well about all of this, and I was reading an interview uh, about like her her 2013. Uh, book. I think it's called David Lynch Swerves. Was that the yep. one that you read? Yeah, and uh, she she's the, she says you know first half of the career is Eraserhead to Firewalk with Me. Second half is uh, Lost Highway to Inland Empire. But uh, it doesn't have the return in there yet. So what's the deal? Yeah. You know what's the deal, Martha? Like we're Where, waiting. Deal, Martha. Yeah. This this is the dialectic, right? This is the synthesis of both of those things into its final form. Um, but one of the things that that Nokemson writes about specifically is David Lynch's infatuation with both the scientific and the theoretical in like quantum physics, and also uh, the way that he adopted sort of the the holy Vedas of Hinduism as an influence for his spiritual outlook and also his uh, his his meditation and, and like his focus there. Like he has a foundation that uh, teaches people how to meditate. And how to find a connection to what they call the universal consciousness. One of the things that that she mentions is that there is this misconception or several misconceptions about David Lynch. One of them being that he's bleak, that the darkness is like the premier thing that he's trying to focus in on. And the other that what he's offering us is like dreams, right? Or, or that it's an interpretation of something that only exists in a, in a sleeping sort of state, you know, in a state that doesn't, that isn't real. And I thought that this was fascinating, you know, talking about like the Vedic texts informing this idea of an infinite consciousness and exploring a realm of infinite possibilities. And that I think is what Lynch is doing. And when we talk about Lost Highway as a hinge point, what we're getting into, right, is the first time that he's exploring something that is, that that senses and plays out the most like a waking dream, right? Like something that is wholly in a space of the of the real for the most part, but just these instances that all feel like normality crashing into each other in ways that they haven't before. 
Absolutely. Wait. And I think what that does, right, is that it makes the connection between the subjective, quote unquote, and the objective space so much smoother, right? The, 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 the sequence at the beginning is fucking weird. And it's weird in a similar way to this, to this, to, to, to when it's Balthazar getting on screen, you know, and, right. and it, 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 it helps create this cohesion and this synthesis between how the character actually quote unquote is and how they are imagining themselves. And there's, and yeah, like you can play fast and loose with these things. It might actually help you, you know, it might actually help the work. Um, yeah, I just think, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> it's, so, it's so cool. And there's a quote from uh, Nokimson in, in an interview that I read that I really, really like. It's a little long. I'll probably end up cutting it, um, but I'll, I'll read the whole thing anyway right now. She says, Lynch perceives the world as a system of balances and contrasts. For Lynch, the basic reality is goodness and bliss, the truth and light that emanates from a universal consciousness. Evil is not a thing in itself, but a negation, whatever blocks us from the essential beauty and vivacity of the universe. Many misperceive what Lynch is about because they get stuck in Lynch's powerful portrayals of the problems the characters encounter and miss the balancing elements in the film. In every film, Lynch asks us to focus on the way suffering is rooted in perception, how his characters see the world. If a viewer is too focused on external battles, he or she will not notice that everything in a Lynch film is speaking to us of the consequences of how we see things and how we in our society too often turn away from wonder and toward fear. I thought that that was super cool. And it, it again, drives that, that interpretation of this movie that just like opened it up for me, you know, that it's like, oh yeah, like this movie isn't fixated on the horrors it's not fixated on like the terribleness of these characters or on like the murder right it doesn't it doesn't take pleasure in the violence it doesn't even really show us the violence against uh against patricia arquette's character against renee in this movie you know we see the aftermath a little bit in videotape but it is it's distorted what it's really showing us is like almost sort of like it, it it's almost a morality tale you know like it's almost like here's what happens when you go a route towards your fear and away from like exploring a realm of possibilities and opening yourself up and making yourself this this pathway towards a consciousness and understanding of yourself. Uh, and I, I I started thinking a little bit about <laughs> this is going to sound really stupid. I'm probably going to end up cutting this. I was thinking about the saxophone scene again, and I joked earlier that it's kind of like a sex scene. But when I thought about it later, I was like, no, it actually is one of the most intimate connections that Fred has in the entire film. And it's showing us and emphasizing and the reason that's such a disorienting and like kind of engulfing and rapturing sequence is because there's that moment of brilliance in it where it's like, here's an alternative to the fear and the doubt and the, and the menace that Fred holds where he could just be a musician. Like he could be a happy person. You know, <laughs> there, There's something that he loves, right? And he doesn't have to live his life afraid of the infidelity of this woman you know he can pursue it and he can and he can uh guide a passion with that woman if he wants but ultimately like he doesn't have to if he doesn't want to like there's there's pathways uh, available to him and i was just like oh, okay so the the sex scene is a sex scene actually wait and that makes sense too would you say he's a good saxophone player like like would <laughs> like 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 or or because i think 
canonically, you know, for the for like like you know, they can afford that house presumably in right. some way <laughs> in some part because of the money that he's made as as a sax player. I don't, I don't know, would you like like is he is this something he's good at? Cuz I cuz this leads somewhere, I promise. Okay. Like <laughs> I I'm going to argue cuz I thought about that too and I asked myself the same question. I don't think it matters. I think that all that really matters is that he is that it brings him pleasure, that he's mm. passionate about it. And that like it's something that he he does with a, a without vita- fear without fear with a vitality and a fervor you know it could be it could be dog shit and yeah. I think that that's when we talk about bravery I think that that's where a lot of this comes from in terms of how how Lynch produces his work and how he creates art too with this fearlessness that is derived from the passions and the stories and the the possibilities that he's trying to play with. And not really about the final product being something that feels, uh, you know, satisfying. Like, like, yeah. Exactly, satisfying yeah. or, or or cogent to a, a critical audience. That's that's so. I so so I ask because I I thought as you were as you were talking, I was thinking about the uh, audition scene in Mulholland Drive. You know where where uh, we see Naomi Watts uh, as Betty. Uh, you know, just walk into an audition room and leave everyone, you know, stunned. And then right after that is my favorite scene in the entire film that I think is even more compelling, which is when we see Justin Thoreau auditioning all those girls and to, for for his movie, <laughs> yeah. and they're all lip syncing. And and in both in in all three of these, right, we're watching someone perform. And it's very unclear whether or not they're good at this or bad. Yeah, you know, is is. Except I think in Mulholland Drive, Betty's acting or, or Diane's acting or Naomi Watts' character's acting is strangled by uh, a, a male Hollywood power structure mm-hmm. that that you know that stops her from expressing herself and and become and becoming successful and having an outlet to express herself. But in Lost Highway, it's all Fred's fucking fault. Like this is all this is yes, all totally. on him. Like like he he is the thing. There's there's yes. no there's no broader power structure. There is only the mystery man who is himself. I think. I think we can agree. Like right. a, a, a manifestation of this of of Fred's shame and guilt and horror and horribleness. Uh, uh, there is there is only him that is uh, driving his actions and pushing his actions and 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 messing with him. So, so if we're making this argument that I think is uh, a really stellar one, that what Lynch is actually doing in a lot of his films, particularly in Lost Highway, is, you know, showcasing sort of like the possibilities of connection and that that is where salvation lies. That's where freedom and and vitality and salvation lies. Um, and that the the alternative, which is letting fear get in the way and us going down these darker roads where we ourselves are, are preventing... Um, preventing our own happiness from fully blooming. If we're going with that, what I'm relating it to is this thing that I come back to a lot, um, particularly in our current moment, which is that as someone who is uh, politically left and, um, you know, working in corporate America and an adult uh, living in the late stages of capitalism in the middle of a pandemic in a city that has some of the highest rates of inequality in the country. Like there are no, there's no shortage of bleakness 
just like around me and, and that I am a part of on a daily basis. Um, but what I've really come to understand, uh, particularly in the last several years is that like when I've had these questions of like, what the fuck is all of this for? Mm -hmm. The answer is what we're talking about. It's Mm -hmm. what Lynch is saying is the answer, which is connecting with another human like that's why we're here and it's often the thing that reminds me that like everything's okay right like when I have a really great conversation with the person I just met like Jonah or you know I'm like watching something take place on the street that makes me well up with tears like whatever it is right like there is um, a moment when I connect with my own humanity through connecting with another person that I'm reminded that that is the antidote to this bleakness. It is, uh, it is the purpose and it is also the thing that ameliorates the pain of fear. Fear is uh, an intensely painful emotion. That doesn't make it a bad one, but it is painful. And I love where we're landing with this because Um, I think it answers the question for me that I couldn't quite answer until we got to the end of this conversation, which is that like, I couldn't place my finger on why I was so transfixed by this film. Like, yes, it's formal qualities. Yes. It's (laughs) narrative propulsion and, and, uh, just Lynch being a, a fantastic, like weaver of image and sound and all these things, right. That makes cinema amazing. But I was also like emotionally attached to this movie or like at least impacted by it and I'm realizing that this is why it's because the film is telling me something that I needed affirmed and often need affirmed which is that this human connectivity is is what we're after and is really the thing that um that is a reprieve from all of this bleakness and I think it's really clear, especially as, you know, we all become more familiar with with David Lynch as a personality, um, thanks to Twitter and and all of these uh, interviews that we get to watch <laughs> of him anytime we want that, like, he is a luminous being. He's not a person like steeped in darkness by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and when you come to his films with that understanding, it's so much easier to see this kernel at the core of what he's saying. That that's so beautiful. That's that's so beautiful. Like, thank you for saying that. Like, thanks <laughs> for letting me just yeah. go there for a minute. No, I think you're totally right. Like, I think that that it's true. Like, the world is horrible, but there there is joy and connection that is genuine and that that is not bullshit and that is not just synthesized, you know? And and I think that it, you know, if 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 I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it almost sounds like what you're saying is like if it's possible for us to see the perspective of somebody as horrible as Fred Madison, then then we then we can all reach each other. Then, 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 then the the divisions that exist between people are inherently meaningless, right? Because we can, because we, it's possible for us to connect with a perspective as out there and wild and, 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 you know, in some cases evil as like Fred's. Yeah. I mean, 
That's that's beautiful. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. You just summarized what I took about five minutes to say in like the perfect <laughs> the perfect collection of words. Thank you for that, Jonah. I, I want to take it even a little bit further than that. You know, th- I think that this film is one where we can classify David Lynch as like a deeply humanist director, right? Like that he is he is deeply empathetic. One of the things that I was struggling with with David Lynch was that, you know, on the show, we like to talk about the 90s as a very specific kind of decade, culturally, politically. And I was having a hard time nailing down anything approaching like a materialist sort of understanding of David Lynch, right? Like he almost transcends it. I think, And I think my answer is still that he does, in fact, transcend it. I don't think that he's focused on the political or the economic or or any of those sorts of things in in a really tangible way. But one of the things that I did gather from understanding more about Lynch and thinking about this further is that he is obsessed with the realm of possibility. And like we've all said, you know, we live in a really kind of bleak time. We live in a really dark moment. The the dim sort of like afterglow of like the peak of like the American empire, like things are crumbling around us and corroding and infrastructure is decaying and the, the sun is going to kill us eventually. You know, like all of this stuff is happening and it is part of that neoliberal order and that neoliberal project that crushes us and beats us down to convince us that there isn't any other possibility, Mm. that there is no alternative and that there is no other world imaginable. And while Lynch may not explicitly be dealing with the political and handling that particular, that that context in, in any way that is discernible, what he is doing is grasping at something that I think is still imperative to a political project that looks beyond our horizons, which is demand and, and, and seek out things that are beyond what we conceive as possible. Yeah. And he does that in his films and he shows us all of these possibilities and he, and he throws us all of these things that disorient us precisely for the reason of showing us how strange it might feel. How weird and disorienting it might feel to exist in a place where that thing that doesn't play out exactly the way that we're so certain it will, how that happens, you know? But I think that in in that regard, he is doing, this is a major service yeah. <laughs> to people who watch yeah. his films and to society as a whole, you know, as an artist, to create something that like teaches us to imagine something beyond what we are so certain is the the limits and the threshold of our reality. And at the same time, right, Fred can't, right? Like, right. Like, yes, <laughs> totally. Like, like, that's the thing about Fred is that he he's stuck on this Mobius strip. He's stuck mm-hmm. doing the same thing over and over. He's stuck being unable to express himself. Um, like, you know, as as we sort of as you sort of started, Aaron, like, like he if he could just turn to the saxophone or his wife or something, (laughs) you know, like, like some way to break out of this, like then maybe he wouldn't be so fucking stuck, you know, then maybe he wouldn't, it wouldn't be so bad. And, and Mulholland drive, I think is a, is a a very political film. Blue velvet, I think is a very political film, but I know that they aren't talked about in that way. You know, you know, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like there's, they're, they're, they're so often sidelined into, um, art for art's sake. And that's, you know, that's part of it. That's, I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a part of it, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, I guess the difference to me, right. Is that we spend a lot of time thinking about P 
people like Fred and people like OJ in in the mm. world, but in this very surface level way, you know, in it, it, uh, 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 oh god, like fucking Tiger King, you know what I mean? Like Tiger yep. King has a is is <laughs> all like those people, but is it yes. actually ever about getting inside of the heads of any of these people and and understanding why they? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't care about that. It's it's, it's sensation, you know. It's 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 just fucking noise you know (laughs) but but i think i think lost highway is a is a beautiful example of actually getting inside the head of somebody who's exhibiting this extreme this extreme psychology and this extreme subjectivity mulholland drive to me goes even further though and that is is getting inside the head of of a perspective that we don't see right like somebody somebody who is rejected somebody who is somebody who who is ignored somebody who is put down somebody who is marginalized and so and so Again, as great as I think Lost Highway is, and I, I want to be clear here, I do think it's really great. I think that I think that that Lynch using the tools at his disposal to get us inside of of Diane Selwyn's head is is an even more progressive quote unquote you know you know quote unquote use of the, those tools than what he's doing in Lost Highway. But I, it's not it's not a competition it's not a contest you know you know you know what i oh this one gets a nine out of ten and this one gets it no like fuck that fuck that you know you know what i mean like they both like they, they both like like uh uh express the people who they purport to express and that is that's that's everything that's the that's the that's the goal that's the dream and i think you know i'm i'm glad you're coming back to this point that he's showing us He's showing us Fred and he's showing us Fred being stuck. Mm-hmm. And what is potentially progressive about that message is that like he's not selling that to us, right? He's like this fucking sucks and you murder people. Like <laughs> this, the, the other thing, the other thing is just like the fascination and the sensationalization of it, like Well, and I'm thinking so often that like that stuck space is the thing that is so often what we consume right like Mm -hmm. and so often what is sold back to us um in you know the late stages of capitalism and just like in consumer culture and like so i think like aside from the subject of the film you know being a white man right like i still think the message is is an interesting one in that like he's saying like this space of fear that he's living in is not like, we don't need to be here and look, it's not fun. It's uncomfortable. And get off the Mobius strip. Get off the Mobius strip. Literally. That's what he's telling us. Stop doing things the same way all the time. Absolutely. Like it's like, and in that way, like it is, you know, uh, deeply antithetical to that neoliberal capitalist order, right? Like it is, it's not commodifying it. It's not sensationalizing it. It's actually showing it to us, as I said, like almost as like a morality tale that is like, you see, like, this is what happens, right? Like, like you, de- you descend into darkness. You kill some bras. Yeah. You, it, it, it creates external and internal violence when you do this, when you recede into your fear rather than take, take the exit route revolutionary filmmaker just kidding <laughs> i won't call him a revolutionary filmmaker no but you with know a capital r that is but you know we like we talk about these artists who you know make some of this work here especially in like the back like third of the decade 
uh, from like 96, 97 on who are all reckoning with this, this new end of history sort of neoliberal order, this third way centrist Clintonite sort of like revolution in politics that is largely apolitical, but like deeply political as we talk about on the show. And you see people rebelling against it. And while this movie, like at face value, can seem completely uh, incongruous with with that assertion, it is absolutely part of, I think, that cohort. It is something that is challenging that order. It's something that is like looking at society and asking us to reconfigure and and to shape it and to perceive it in a different way. That's so that's so interesting. So you're saying like um, this is this is the tale of what happens if the narrator from Fight Club doesn't like start a fight club. Like, <laughs> this is, this is what happens to him. If uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, like if, if Neo yeah. does, if Neo takes the red pill, like this is what, <laughs> or the blue, pill, I don't know. Or the bad one, the one that doesn't, the one that makes you stay in the matrix. Like this is what right, it is. Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe, right. Like obviously those movies come out after this one does, but like, it does kind of feel like that. It's kind of like showing us the, the bleakness of, of consistency and monotony it's an early iteration of i think his sort of central thesis that that nokimson references you know that is other possibilities are there you know like that the possibilities are endless yeah. and it does that by by showing us the loop it shows us it shows it by showing us the monotony the possibilities well, I... are endless when you don't give in to the alienation right yeah yeah well cuz that's the thing that's the thing that that pisses me off about those 90s movies like like you know uh the matrix and fight club and american beauty which i haven't seen and don't really have that much interest in watching but like the you know the whole like oh yeah like burn your cubicle like that's how they you know like <laughs> right that's how they get you down like i don't know i i you know i i was born at the end of the 90s and and watching those movies can feel very alienating to me because that that idea that that you could have just a an, an office job that you could work forever and that would take care of you and your family financially like that that's not something that i've always felt like was was coming for me you know like that's not that's not something that i've always felt like was was just was just achievable if i if i if i wanted it or if i needed mm-hmm. it um so i think this does a better job of of um of of capturing that alienation right like mm. like fred and uh, you know the 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 male protagonists of the movies that i mentioned they all feel that alienation you know like they they all and the matrix is a bad example because that's really about being trans like don't you know like <laughs> that's, i shouldn't lump that in you know like that's As a different thing as we have thing. discussed <laughs> on this show yes it's about being trans that's a different that's a different thing but like i guess what i'm trying to say is by making it more specific and and by by um, making it, I guess, more about uh, gender in 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 a more kind of obvious way. Um, I think it I think it it transcends that feeling of like why doesn't he just why doesn't he just like like what's what's stopping him you know <laughs> yeah. from from just from just being okay you know <laughs> it's <Yeah>. clear. <laughs> Totally. That's a beautiful point. Absolutely. And at the very least, it means that we don't see like a Twitter thread once a week calling Lost Highway fascist, you know, like from some pop ap- academic, like trying to convince us that it's a bad movie. So, you know, thank God for that. What a I, time to be alive. 
I'd love it if the if the pop academics tried to tried to watch this movie. I would love it. I'd love it if the if the uh, if the problematic people. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> yes. Let's let's see let's see him try to chew on this one. You know. Yeah. Don't give many ideas, Jonah. I know. They, like, Lord knows, like it it could happen, but no, I I I would be the first person. Uh, you know, dying on that hill, defending David Lynch, and as a as a deeply empathetic uh, filmmaker and, and a humanist first and foremost, and saying something, uh, you know, rather progressive in a really interesting way in yeah. this movie. And I think, I think, yeah, and I, I guess I don't know. I I am being glib there when I say that. Like, I know plenty of people who 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 don't like Mulholland Drive and think it's problematic, you know. But but <laughs> I will say that I think the thing about the thing about Lynch to me is that he asks you to do a lot of work. You know, he asks you to read him. He asks, he asks you to think about it. And I feel like over the course of this conversation, the three of us are kind of out on a limb here. You know, are, are we, are we reading this right? Is this, is this, you know, <laughs> is this actually what he meant? Does this, does what we're saying make any sense? Does what's in the movie make any sense? And, but, but that is so exciting to me. That's so cool to me. Like, like we, it's, it's better to have things that, that are a little open to interpretation and, and, and ask something of you, you know, and 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 yeah. and push you to trust yourself to interpret this you know like that that's so 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 few so few pieces of, of filmmaking do that so few pieces ask you to 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 actually wobble a little bit you know as you're as you're yes. wading through them and 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 for as much as i i love nakshimsen like she's great like don't get me wrong um she she opens that book you're talking about david lynch swerves by just saying like this scholar is wrong about him and this scholar is wrong about him and this scholar is wrong about him like she yeah. talks she talks so much shit including about like to like like slavo zizek like who is oh, like boy. a pretty smart oh. guy like like she just she just roasts him at the beginning of that book oh, um, oh. yeah i mean and to be fair like she's had like a lot of access to Lynch himself and probably has a good a good finger on the pulse of his intent. But one thing that I always am am really rewarded by when like looking at interviews with David Lynch or reading or watching him is that he either is exceptionally coy about the meaning in his work or actually has no idea. <laughs> you know, which is like which I think is an even more interesting take on it, which is that, you know, it's it it is what it is and and you know it it's open to interpretation but that also uh you know there is certainly something deeper there than just art for art's sake yeah you know i think he sees it as pulling it out of this infinite consciousness you know like oh let me grab it and then here you go now it's on now it's on the screen you know <laughs> and and i'm you know i've never done transcendental meditation uh i'm like a pretty a spiritual person you know i love i i'm i'm all about the psychology baby like yeah. <laughs> here's <laughs> here's how your brain works here's how your brain works and that's and that's one of the reasons why i love lynch you know but but uh maybe he's right you know or maybe he's wrong i don't fucking know he doesn't know you know <laughs> like like <laughs> but let's grapple with it let's try to figure it out we live in a chaos void like this yes. is all, this is all there is to do you know <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've we reached, might as well. We've reached the end of the timeline here. What else is there to look at it besides, like, 
you know, weird cowboys and uh, <laughs> brain splitting in half and, you know, mystery men <laughs> that appear from nowhere in kabuki makeup. Like that is that's yes. what we should be doing. That's yes. what I want to go down doing when it all burns. It's I mean, just like having conversations about David Lynch and his that's, work. And that's what we're doing right now. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's it, like you said, it's a bleak time. The world's on like fire in all these different ways. You know, This is the only thing that gives me meaning anymore, Jonah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's let's do it. It's all we've got. Oh, we're doing it. We're here for each other. We've been here for each other tonight. Absolutely. In a great way. <laughs> I love that. Um we've we've gone on for a really long time here and haven't even bothered to talk about some of the other logistical stuff in the movie. The soundtrack is great. I don't think we need to talk about it too much. Go listen to it. Skip the Marilyn Manson tracks maybe, but like, you know, whatever. Uh <laughs> But uh, hey, you know Trent Reznor uh, did, did that one, and uh, Angelo Badalamenti and Barry Adamson doing the score. Um, Jonah, is there is there anything else that you had in your notes to talk about with Lost Highway? Uh I I just think we gotta we gotta shout out that this is uh, Jack Nance's final role in uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, a David Lynch in a in, in 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 a David Lynch movie, and I think in any movie. Um, but you'd have to double check that. Uh, as much as this is the beginning of a second phase in his career, I think it's worth pointing out that it is kind of an end as well. He only made one more feature film using like a real camera, like after this, which is the straight story, you know, two, two years mm-hmm. later. Because Mulholland Drive, I, I mean, you know, it was shot with real cameras, but it, it, it was a television pilot, you know, and then it became the, the, the masterpiece that it is today. But it wasn't, I feel like you don't get from just from a from a from a, a texture standpoint. Like the beginning of that movie doesn't isn't quite as uh, perfectly atmospheric as the 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 as as the end of that movie and as the and as Lost Highway. Um, and I just wish there were more David Lynch movies. Like I just wish I yeah. I just wish somebody give him the money to just shoot a normal feature. I maybe that wouldn't even interest him anymore. But like God, I'd love another one. Like God, oh, no. I would. <laughs> it's time, yes. man. You know it is. Uh, and with that, I think that that about does it for us for this episode. Uh, again, the film is Lost Highway by the David Lynch. Jonah Koslowski, thank you so much for hanging out with us and talking about this amazing film. Th- thank you so much for having me. I feel like this was such a, a, a positive and affirming conversation. Um, got me in a really good mood. Like, happy, happy Thanksgiving and thank you so much. <laughs> likewise where can people find your work jonah yeah so you can find me on twitter at uh kozlovsky speaks uh or just my name uh either way uh that's that's one place and uh uh, you can also find me on the spool uh i just finished up a year-long column on the work of philip seymour hoffman psh i love you uh, so you can, it is very good. Congratulations, by the way. That's quite an undertaking. You've seen every Philip Seymour Hoffman feature film performance now, haven't you? It's all of them are in my brain somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> somehow. There, yeah. That's uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's not you know, it's not talking about all the movies of the '90s, but uh, it's <laughs> it's 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 something I'm proud of. So yeah, thank you As so you much for be. having me. Yeah. <laughs> No, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Um, we'll make sure to to link so you can follow Jonah and read uh, some of his PSH I Love You column. It's it's fantastic. It's excellent. You've done us all a great service. 
Um, you can also follow us at uh, Hit Factory Pod, both on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow Carly too if you want to. Should what? I give him? Should I give him your handle? <laughs> you you can you can find Carly's Twitter account like, from no from one, the Hit Factory Pod. No one should follow me. Don't. <laughs> Sorry, that, that one caught me off guard. <laughs> My synapses aren't firing that well this week. I have to say. No worries. Well, at le- at the very least, follow Hit Factory Pod Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also support the show uh, be- by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda, and we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone. I'd like to start off here with a song that I recorded here not long ago. I think it's one of the prettiest ones I've ever recorded. Boys, if you will, a little tune called the Lost Highway. I'm a rolling stone all alone and lost for a life of sin I have paid the cost when I pass by There goes another boy down the lost highway Just a deck of cards and a jug of wine And a woman's lies makes a life like mine For the day we met, I went astray I started rolling down that lost highway